It is Lent. It is the Lent season again. And I want to open by describing a betrayal that happened in a garden. We'll get to the John 18 passage. I'll read that. Um, but before we do, I want to describe a betrayal that happened in the garden. And before I do that, I'm going to get my water. All right, let's pray, and then I'll tell you the story. I think you'll recognize it. Holy Father, thank you for gathering us here together again in your, in your house. Uh, it's an honor to be here together. It's a real honor. It's, it's a comfort to know that when we gather in your name, you are here with us. It's a comfort to know that that's not just a metaphor or, or, or a nice way to talk or an illusion or a deceptive, but it's real. It's as real as things get. Just because we cannot see you physically, visibly here with us, we don't, we don't doubt, but we believe that you are in fact here with us by your Spirit. And so I pray that you would minister your grace to us. I pray that you would comfort us by your Spirit. I pray that you would instruct us in your ways, and I pray that you would empower us. Your Holy Spirit is such a good and broad gift to your church. We have access to so much comfort and joy and, and strength uh, through the giving of your Spirit, and I, I just want to receive the fullness of the, of the gift that you have for us, right? All the blessing that you have for us, we want to receive it and experience it. Uh, and so I pray uh, we, we are here and ready to receive, uh, and I pray that you would pour out your grace upon us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, here's, here's one of the premises of the story I'm about to tell. If you make something, and if you own the materials that you use to make it, then that thing is yours, okay? If you, if you made it, and you made it with stuff that you already owned, then that thing is yours, okay? God made the universe, and he created the stuff that he made it with. He created the building blocks, and then he, and then he, and then he constructed the universe. He assembled those building blocks into the cosmos, and it is therefore his. And because the world is his, he gets to make the rules. No one else does. God gets to make the rules because the universe is his. All right, well, here's the rules in this particular garden. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat, for in the day that you eat of that, you shall surely die. One rule, one tree, don't eat from that tree. The rest are fine, don't eat from that tree. And we're even given the reason. He, he doesn't have to give us reasons for rules. He just gets to make the rules, but in this case, there is a reason given. On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Therefore, don't do it. Now that reason is typically understood not to mean that they would die the moment that they ate it, because they obviously didn't. But it was more saying that if you break this rule, you will unleash spiritual and physical death into this good creation. To break that one rule was a betrayal. I know that's a hard word, that's a harsh word, but that is what it was, a betrayal. Adam and Eve were guests in God's garden. 
They didn't own the garden. They were guests in the garden. And, and, and they were stewards. They were told, look, this is a good place, and I want you to enjoy it. It's part of your job. is just, just enjoy the goodness here. But I also want you to take care of it. It's yours to take care of. Steward it. Instead, what they did was they betrayed God by breaking his law, and that betrayal resulted in exile, kicked out of that good place, kicked out of the garden, but it was exile with a promise. God says, now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden. Basically, God says, okay, because you've done this, you cannot stay here. That's not an option for you anymore. There are consequences to rebellion. And because you have done this, you cannot stay here. You have to leave. But he also said, in the context of that, he also said one day he's going to send someone to fix this problem. One day he will send someone to crush the head of the serpent. So even his response to human betrayal was gracious. It didn't have to be. It's kind of the point of grace. He didn't have to extend grace, but he did. He did. He responded to betrayal with grace. You have to leave now, but I promise the time is coming when I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to rescue you. And that is a pattern that we see displayed over and over in the pages of Scripture. And that is a pattern that we see throughout the history of humanity. And that is a pattern that we see throughout the history of my life and your life. We betray God by breaking his law. That results in negative consequences. But God responds to these betrayals with faithfulness. He is faithful. In fact, even when we are not faithful... God is faithful. Now listen, that's just about the best news that anyone could hear. Even when we are not faithful, in in our worst moments, God is still faithful. His faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. That's really, really good news. Despite our repeated attempts to break relationship with God, to break covenant with God over and over and over again, he demonstrates his faithfulness. He is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and his faithfulness, turns out, is more powerful than our rebellion. It's not a fair fight. It's not equally matched powers of good and evil and who's going to win. It's not a yin and yang, good and bad, balance each other. No, no, no. It's that... Our betrayal is bad, but it is nothing compared with the power of His grace and faithfulness. And His faithfulness wins. That's good news. All right, on to, that was a garden and a betrayal. I want to go to another garden and another betrayal. And we're going to read it from the Gospel of John. We're back in another garden here in John 18. And we're talking about another betrayal. John 18, and I'll just read the verses 1 to 11. If you're following along in a pew Bible, it's page 878. When Jesus had finished praying, 
he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I'm going to stop there. This is indeed the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this word, the word of the Lord, endures forever. I'm not going to linger too long on this story of betrayal. It's arguably the most famous act of betrayal in the history of the world, Judas' betrayal of Jesus, right? It, that, that's an act of betrayal that took place in the garden that everybody, most everybody, knows about. If you know anything about the story of Christianity, then you know about this. Um, I've been in a, I, I do this, I go through phases where I fixate on a particular thing or an artist, I get really interested in it. Lately, I've been on a, in a, on a, in a Bob Dylan phase. So I've been listening to his music, subjecting my family to nonstop Bob Dylan music in the home. I've been reading books about him. Anyways, I recently was watching footage of a concert that he gave at the Newport Folk Festival. It was kind of an infamous, infamous moment in his career because it's, it's when Dylan went electric. I don't know. Yeah, I guess you have to be a fan to know about this moment. But he, um, prior to this moment, he was a folk guy. He was an acoustic folk singer. Uh, and... and People really loved him. But at this particular Newport Folk Festival, he brought an electric guitar. And, and he plugged in his electric guitar and he proceeded to play it very loudly. With music that sounded very different than what the people had come to expect from him. And that the fans, I think it's safe to say, didn't like it. Right? It's not what they wanted to hear. And it was met with active resistance, even, even active hostility. It's uncomfortable to watch this, this f- footage. And I, it's just music, but his fans were, were pretty obsessive. And, and one person, there's a moment where it's, it's kind of quiet, and then one voice is heard. It kind of rings out over everybody else. It's a, it's a fan, shouts out, Judas! <laughs> now that feels like an overreaction to me. Um, it's just music. But my point here is that in that moment, everyone got the reference. 
Everyone understood what was being said, right? Everyone knows that Judas is the baddest of the bad guys because he betrayed the best of the good guys, right? That's the, that's the story. We all know that. Uh, Michael Card describes it this way. He has this great song called Why, and it says, Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? And why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. All right, that's, that, that's what makes it particularly painful. That's why the word betrayal is relevant here. Because they were friends. And Judas betrayed him. Okay, so that's perhaps, arguably... What was the worst act of betrayal in the history of the world? But what I want for us to notice, I don't want us to fixate on the betrayal. I want us to notice the faithfulness of Jesus' response to that act of betrayal. Jesus knew this moment was coming, right? He even predicted it. So he's not shocked. He's not taken off guard. But still, that kiss from the betrayer had to be one of the most heartbreaking moments of Jesus' life. So how did he respond to that moment? Remember, we're talking about a man who literally could have done anything, right? All the power in the universe was at his disposal. He could have done anything. He could have rained fire down from heaven. He, he He could have... made Judas's head turn into a donkey head. He could have, like, there's no limit to how he could have responded. He could have said, you know what? I am so sick of this. All I've ever done is love you with a perfect love. Literally, that's all I've ever done. And this is how you repay me? I'm done. I don't need this. But, But there's not even a hint of that here, right? Jesus responds to betrayal with faithfulness. That's what God does. He responds to betrayal with faithfulness. Right? Jesus has been very purposefully walking a path that would lead to the cross. It's why he came. He is the serpent crusher. The living, breathing, tangible, visible expression of God's faithfulness. Right? He is God's faithfulness. And if an act of betrayal was going to cause him to change course, well, that would have happened a long time ago. Because as we've seen, humans have been betraying God since the Garden of Eden. And the whole point of this rescue mission is to absorb the penalty for these betrayals and secure our redemption. So on he marches to the cross, but not before giving everyone there a little taste of his power and glory. He asks who they're seeking. They say, Jesus. And he says, I am. I get it that most translations say, I am he. They put the pronoun in there. Uh, The he is implied grammatically, but it's not what he said. The, the, The pronoun he is not in there in the original. He said, he said, I am. And it was such a powerful testimony that it knocked everyone off their feet. It it was like... I mean, it's hard to picture this moment, right? We have the words, we have the description, but what do you picture? When you hear that, what are you picturing? Right? I, I, 
to me, it's like his divinity is erupting out of him and his flesh can hardly hold it in anymore. And everyone hits the dirt. They're just, they're just blown away by a little glimpse of his divinity. What, what was it? Was it? Was it his tone of his voice? Was it was the power of his voice? Was, did he reveal something? Was there a flash of lightning? I don't know. I don't know. But, it, but, but, but I know this. It has something to do with what he said. I am. He's been making, have you noticed this? He's been making I am statements throughout the Gospel of John, right? I am the bread of life. That's what I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. There's one light of the world, and it is I. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Definite articles there. The, not A, not an option, but the. I am the way. There's one way, and I am it. I am the truth, and I am the life. I am the true vine, he said. And now he just says the verb. He just says the verb. I am. I am. I want you to imagine the conversations that took place at the breakfast table the next morning. Have you thought about that? I'm always thinking about stuff like this when I read the Bible. I picture, I picture a husband and wife sitting at a breakfast table. And the wife says to her husband, how was work last night, honey? You didn't get home till sunrise. What, what did you do last night? And he says, well, you know, it was, it was the strangest thing. I, 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 I can't stop thinking about it. We went to go arrest the man Jesus, you know the one, right? You've heard of him, the teacher, the, 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 the Jewish rabbi that everyone's talking about. This guy that, you know, the leaders of his own religion, they, they're, they're trying to kill him. They want him dead. Right? He, I don't know why. He's causing problems. He's trouble for them, whatever. They, they want to kill him, but they're not allowed to kill him. And so they're bringing the civil government into it. They're, they're trying to bring civil charges against him so that the civil government will kill him because they can't kill him, but they want him dead. So any, anyways, they're trying to bring civil charges against him, and, 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 and so off we went. We get there. He wasn't scared of us at all. L listen, honey, I ne I've never seen this before. We, we, we find the criminal. We're about to apprehend him, right? We came in force, and he was, I'm telling you, not scared at all. No, no attempts to flee. He didn't run. No attempts to bargain. He didn't try to make a deal. He, he didn't even try to fight. We were the soldiers, but he had the power. I, uh, uh, honey, I, I don't know if I'm conveying this accurately, but listen. Have you ever seen someone just absolutely take control of a situation and you immediately know they're the one in charge? That was this. I've never seen anything like it in my life. He asked us, who are you looking for? And we said, Jesus. And he said, I am. Listen, I have never heard words spoken like that. No words have ever affected me so deeply. I mean, I felt the weight and the force and the power and the truth of those words. Just two words. Two words. Knock me flat off my feet, literally. Wait, 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 what do you mean? You mean two words? 
knocked you off your feet. You're a big, strong man. No, no, no. That's, that's what I'm telling you. Not, not just me. All of us. It was the strangest thing. We were standing there. We had torches. We had swords, helmets, shields. We had all the power. But when he said those two words, we realized in that moment, no, 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 no. He had the power. Not us. He had the power. And it knocked us right over. And the only reason that any of us is still alive is because he allowed us to live. I'm sure of that. All right, now obviously, I made that up, right? But surely, conversations like that happened, right? These are true stories. They happen to real people in real time. And that's what real people do when they encounter power and mystery. They talk about it and try to explain it and try to make sense of it. So surely conversations like that were happening all over town the next day, right? I mean, the Roman soldiers showed up there in a big group of them, and they all experienced that. And of course, the real explanation to what happened there that night is found in Exodus in chapter 3 and verse 13, which I would not expect a Roman centurion to know. Why would they? But I do know that absolutely every single Jewish person present at that moment would have been thinking of the verses from Exodus 3, which say this, Moses said to God, well, Lord, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Well, then what am I supposed to tell them, huh? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That's what I want you to tell them when they're questioning your credentials, when they're questioning whether you're with me, whether you represent me. I want you to tell them, I am has sent me to you. The very God who called forth the cosmos, who ordered the atoms, that God had entered into his creation and became a creature while retaining his full divinity. That God, he said, tell them. They want to know who sent you? Tell them I am sent you. Tell them you're with me. That God is now standing there before these soldiers. And he gives these soldiers the briefest taste of the power of his divinity and it blows them away, flattens them. And again, I want you to notice the faithfulness of God in the, in the face of betrayal from humans. He's just been betrayed by a friend and yet he reveals his faithfulness. And then Peter thinks, well, maybe we can slash our way out of this. And Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Right? He's saying, look, we're, we're going to do this. I'm going to do this. 
right? I'm not looking to get out of this, Peter. And just to be clear here, that cup, that cup is the cup of God's wrath over sin, of righteous God's wrath over evil. And despite the fact that Jesus is surrounded by enemies and that his friend, even his friends are betraying him, he's willing to drink that cup for us. All right, the next betrayal involves Peter. It takes place not in a garden, but in a courtyard. The betrayals just kind of keep mounting up here. I, I, I'm reading again, but now in verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back. He spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm, and Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. And I'm jumping down now to verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And he denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. I see you with him in the garden. And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. So Peter's denial, Peter's betrayal, takes the form of three words. I am not. You were also one of the man's disciples, weren't you? I'm not. Not me. Now, let's be clear here. Peter's trying to do the right thing, right? He's trying to stand by his friend and teacher. He doesn't have to be there. He's, he's trying to be, he's trying to do the right thing. But he fails. He betrays Jesus. He denies that he even knows him. Imagine what you would feel like if someone that you know and love and have spent years with and, and poured your life into so badly wants to distance themselves from you that they deny that they even know who you are. And now it's time for us to find ourselves in this story. We're the betrayers. We're the lawbreakers. We're the deniers. And I know that's not nice to hear, but that's one of the recurring themes of the Bible. Right? That's, that's Christianity's big PR problem, right? In order to become a Christian, you have to admit that you're a sinner, that you are a betrayer by nature who deserves condemnation and stands in need of a Savior. That's a tough sell, especially in today's culture. And that's why people so often soften it and say, well, actually, we're all pretty good and really, at root, we all deserve eternal life. In fact, everybody deserves eternal life. And God, God really just needed to give us a little boost up in order to get us there. That definitely feels better. That felt better hearing that, didn't it? But that does not square with the Apostle Paul's description of humanity apart from God's grace in Ephesians 2 or any number of other places in the Bible. I want, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2 about the state of humanity, all of us, 
apart from God's grace. This is what we really are. Apart from God, all of us were dead in trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath, separated from Christ, followers of the evil one, alienated from the family of God, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's Paul's description of humanity apart from God. That is a bleak picture. That is you and I apart from God's grace. The Bible tells the story of our repeated rebellion against God and his repeated response of grace and love. Remember we said earlier that if you make something using your own materials, then you own it. Well, God made us by using his own materials, and he owns us. We're his people, but we're also his possession, right? We're his guest in the cosmos. He's well within his rights to issue orders. Orders like, don't eat from that tree. Don't tell lies. And ultimately, the biggest, the biggest order, the biggest commandment that God gave to us is to love, right? That's the big one. We were made to love. That really is the mission statement of humanity. The reason we exist is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We were made to love. And anytime we fail to live that out, that is a betrayal. That is a rebellion against the clearly articulated commandments of God. And the Bible says that there is literally hell to pay for that betrayal. And either we will pay that debt ourselves or someone else will have to drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. And thankfully, Jesus held firm in his resolve to drink that cup on our behalf. And so now we're going to transition, we're about to transition to the Lord's table. And I want to make that transition by talking about one last garden. Here's what the Bible has to say about this garden. Then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's where this rescue mission is headed. That's the destination of this whole big story of betrayal and faithfulness and redemption. We were exiled out of the garden. Jesus came to get us and to bring us to a new garden where we will, in fact, be allowed to eat from the tree of life and to be with the Lord forever. So this week we enter into the Lenten season. For many of us, Lent is a time of repentance and contrition, a time when the symbols of ashes remind us of sin Remind us of the consequence of sin, which is death. And remind us that we will one day return to dust. Now, I fully realize that any time of the year is a good time of the year to think about those things. Any time. But Lent gives us an opportunity to focus on those truths in a more concentrated way. But Lent isn't only about sin and death. Lent is also a season of deep and abiding hope. Hope wins, not death. The word Lent comes from the Old English word. I bet you know this. It means 
spring or springtime. Uh, and from the old German word, uh, the German translation is, it literally means the lengthening of days. The Lenten, uh, Lenten and the Lenten season is the season of the lengthening of days. Now listen, I don't care how long you've lived in Alberta. I don't, I don't care how much you love cold weather. Most of us associate the lengthening of days with hope. Right? We tell ourselves, yes, the days are short now. Yes, the darkness is long now. But that's changing a little bit each day. And yes, the weather is cold now. But at least we're moving in the direction of a season where the air won't hurt our faces and feet. It's coming. Yes, the trees look bare and the gardens look empty, but it won't be long. It really won't be long. And the trees will be budding and the gardens will be abundant. Lent is the combination of sadness for our sin and hope in the faithfulness of God. Sadness that we have betrayed God, but joy that he has not betrayed us. He has been faithful. And the Lenten season is a time to return deep and heartfelt thanks to God. That the hope side of the equation is more powerful than the betrayal side of the equation. Lent is a time to declare our sin is powerful, but God's grace is more powerful. In our passage today, we saw some of the most blasphemous sins ever committed and we saw God's consistent and unwavering response of faithfulness. And that's what the Lent season is all about. And that's what the Lord's Supper is all about as well. It's a recognition of the seriousness of sin. It doesn't make light of sin. It's a feeling of sadness for our sin. But at the same time, it's a celebration of God's faithfulness in response to our sin, God's faithfulness. And so I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We're going to sing about God's faithfulness, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper.